0: Let's begin this morning with a little test. You know, like, oh, we're not in school. A little confession time. Who in here has ever started down the road of a diet plan or eating healthy plan or weight watcher plan and you started it and you did good for maybe a week or two or a month or three or six months and you quit? How many people have ever done that? There's a lot of people in here who are very honest this morning. There's a few who are not sure if I'm going to play this raising hand game. How about this one? How many of you have ever in January said, okay, it's time to get restarted? Past Christmas, I'm past the holidays, I'm getting that gym membership. I'm going to the YMCA, and I'm going to go in there, I'm going to just hit it hard, and I'm going to lose a few pounds, tighten up the muscles a little bit, and I'm going to get in shape in January, but by about the end of February, you weren't going anymore, but you're still paying for the gym membership. Who's ever done that? Ah, a whole lot less of you are being honest. You know, we do those kinds of things in life often, don't we? You ever notice how sometimes in life you start into a commitment of some kind and a commitment to improve? And many times that's in January because it's the, the new year. We make these new year resolutions to start doing better. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to start exercising. And then what happens? We fall off the bandwagon. Matter of fact, in January, two of the most popular commitments that people make is to lose weight and to get in Shape to the most popular commitments that are made of New Year resolutions. Gyms and fitness clubs increase every single January. They report, some report, a 30 to 40% increase in membership in the month of January. But if you wait a few weeks, everything starts to change. If you're a regular person who works out and you have a gym membership, many times you hate the month of January because you're like, oh, those loafers are coming. And they're going to plug up the equipment, and I won't be able to get on the treadmill, and I won't be able to get to my free weights, and they're going to mess up my routine. And I've heard from some of you who are disciplined exercise people, you're like, I just stay away in January because I know in February it will go back to normal and good. There's a lot of truth in that. Now, I know we're not in January, but used gym memberships are one of the top ten money wasters according to Bankrate.com. Four out of five people who join a gym in January won't be back by the end of February. And I understand we're not in January, but I want us to talk about today some commitments that we could start right here in the month of September. Right here in September. You say, why are they, why, why does that happen? Why do people start down a road of a commitment and then not stay with it? Basically, it's because they're not all in. Basically because maybe they've dipped a toe in the water. They walk into the gym. They go and buy some new clothes and say, I'm going to start this, this routine. They pay their membership. Some even get on the treadmill and do a little bit of walking, or some go lift a few weights. Some, some get started, but they fizzle out. Why do they fizzle out? Because they were in, but not all in. I'm going to make this commitment to, to drop 10 pounds. But you're not really all in, so you never really never drop the 10 pounds. You know the same thing happens in a church, though? The exact same thing. I, I, I'm going to start growing in my faith this year. I'm going to start growing in my faith right now. i want to make a commitment that I'm going to be in church. I'm not going to miss church. I'm going to get in a growth group. I'm going to make sure that I'm growing. I'll be there every single week. I'm going to start memorizing Scripture. I'm going to find my place to serve. And they walk in the church building or maybe attend a growth group or sign up to serve. Maybe even give an offering. But over time, sometimes those things fizzle away in our lives. Why? Because we're really not all in. We're somewhat committed. We're, we're partially committed. We, we think we're all in, but we're not really fully, completely immersed and all in. Like the picture I showed last week of the boys jumping off the cliff. Like, I'm going for it. And there's no turning back. Mark Batterson wrote a good book called All In. It may be one you want to pick up. It's been helpful in formulating some of my thoughts for this series. He shares the story about A.W. Milne. He was what's known as a one-way missionary. Lived over a, a century ago. And quite honestly, I wasn't familiar with what a one-way missionary term was. But a one-way missionary was someone who believed in the gospel so much they were willing to go to foreign lands and they bought a one-way ticket because they knew they were not going to be returning because they would be giving their life for the gospel and for the kingdom of God. And instead of packing baggages and suitcases, they would actually pack their coffin with a few items that they owned because they knew they weren't coming home. One-way Missionary. So he set sail for the new Herbides in the South Pacific, aware that the headhunters there had martyred every single missionary before him. But because the gospel was so strong in his life, and because he knew he needed to carry the message of the gospel, the message of grace and love and salvation that comes in Jesus Christ, he said, I'll go. And so he packed his coffin and went to the islands in the South Pacific, Milo didn't fear his life because he had already died to himself. His coffin was packed. For 35 years he lived among that tribe. 35 years. And he loved them to Jesus. And when he died, they buried him in the middle of the village. And inscribed on his tombstone were these words, When he came, there was no light. When he left there was no darkness. One man who said, I'm willing to go and I'm willing to give my life. Buying a one-way ticket to mission fields and packing coffins seems so foreign to us, doesn't it? I mean, let's be honest. If our kids come home and said, Mom and Dad, I'm going to the mission field. I've got my ticket. I won't see you again hold on, let's sit down and talk for a few minutes. You're doing what? I'm leaving and I won't see you again because I'm going to go give my life for Jesus. We parents would think they're crazy. You say, oh Brian, that doesn't happen. Yes, it does. As a preacher, one of the most discouraging things I've seen in my 20 plus years of ministry is when a child comes home and it's typically teenagers, and a lot of times it's been when they've been on some big CIY or youth trip, they come home and they look at mom and dad and say, mom and dad, I'm not going to go to school to be a lawyer. I'm not going to go to school to be a doctor. Mom and dad, I, as a matter of fact, I'm not even sure if I'm going to go to college. I'm going to go serve in a mission field for the next three months, and then I think I'm going to Bible college. And many parents go, Whoa, Bible college? No, let's not get that crazy. I've seen it many times in my life in ministry. Mom and dad say, Now, you got to be able to pay your bills. You gotta be able to have a roof over your head. You gotta be able to take care of your family. You gotta be able, you gotta be able to do something. You, you don't need to go that crazy. I mean love Jesus, but not that crazy. So when we hear someone go on the mission field and give their life, many times we're like, yeah, that's them. That's those crazy people out there, but I don't know about me. You know why it seems foreign is because most of us live comfortable, convenient, cost-free lives that we're convinced ourselves are the lives that Jesus wants us to live even though it doesn't resemble anything that Jesus talked about, like in Luke 9 when he said, whoever whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Are we as a church... Are we willing and are we ready to really live out that kind of gospel call? To really go completely all in. Batterson wrote and said, When did we start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things, that faithfulness is holding the fort, that playing it safe is safe? That there is any greater privilege than sacrifice. That radical is anything but normal. Jesus didn't die to keep us safe. He died died to make us dangerous. Faithfulness is not holding the fort. It is storming the gates of hell. The will of God is not an insurance plan. It's a daring plan. The complete surrender of your life to the cause of Christ isn't radical, it's normal. It's time to quit living as if if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. It's time to go all in and all out for the all in all. Pack your coffin. You ever thought about packing your coffin for Jesus? You ever thought about saying, Lord, I'll risk it all. I'll risk my finances, I'll risk my home, I'll risk my clothes, I'll risk my hobbies, I'll risk it all. You see, most people in most churches think they are following Jesus, but the reality is they have invited Jesus to follow them. Think about it for a moment. We we don't pray many times, God, what would you want me to do? Instead, we pray, God, here's what I need or here's what I want you to do. And if we're honest with ourselves, many times that's our prayer. God, help me with this. God, give me that. God, take care of this. When's the last time you've literally prayed, God, what do you want from me? I'm going to do it. That's a scary prayer if you're truly going to pray it and be committed to it. Batterson says we want everything God has to offer without giving up anything. We want to buy in without selling out. Today in our text we're going to look at, in Luke 18, turn your Bibles there, we meet a person like this. We meet a person like this in Luke 18. If you're familiar with the account, it's known as the rich young ruler. Let's look at our text again. I'll begin in verse 18. A certain ruler... Asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. In the book of Mark it says that a man was actually in a hurry, as this text is shared, And and he falls to his knees as he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The man was in a rush and he stopped right before Jesus. Now, Now, keep your Bibles open as we look at this passage and we dig into it a little bit deeper. This is actually, in my opinion, it is one of the saddest stories of the entire Bible There's so much for us to learn, but the rich young ruler misses out on eternal life. There is so much right about this story, though. See, he came at the right time. He came when he was young. And many times when we're young, we're much more uh, teachable and much more willing to say, what's right? But as we get older, we get stubborn and pride sets in and we're like, oh yeah, that preacher's going to preach a message, but I'm not doing it. I just want to hear the message. But many times the young people right here are like, what's God's word say? I'm supposed to do it. And that's why we see many times when they're young, they're going to do what we perceive as radical or or crazy things for God. He came at the right time. He came to the right person. I mean, he came to the Lord Jesus and said, what must I do? Who else should you go to other than Jesus? pretty smart young man. He asked the right question. It was a question about eternal destiny of his soul. I mean, he could have asked all kinds of questions. Jesus, why did you heal this person? Jesus, why did you do that? Jesus, I saw you teaching over there. You taught this lesson. Tell me about that. No, he went there and said, what must somebody do to inherit eternal life? Boy, that'd be a great question for people to ask. Wouldn't it be awesome if someone just asked you that question? When's the last time someone has said that to you and said, hey, how do I go to heaven? How, do I, how am I saved? But that was his question. And he got the right answer. Jesus told him how to go, go to heaven. So there was a lot of right things. The right time and the right person and the right question. And he got the right answer. Yet, tragedy of all tragedies is he did the wrong thing. He made the wrong choice. He went the wrong direction. Notice first of all, in our text, that he's the ruler. The ruler means that he's the first one. He's a, he's a person of prominence. He's a person of of influence, even though he was young. Known as a great man or even known as a great prince, a leader in the religious society or the synagogue... And so here's a young man who had everything going for him according to the world's standards, which makes what this young man did very remarkable. In Mark 10, it says he ran up and knelt before Jesus. Stop and think about that. Imagine our mayor. No, no imagine our president running up and getting on his knees before Jesus. What must I do? someone of prominence, someone in a place of leadership, someone who's looked up to, someone who is respected. Now, don't, don't miss this. As young as he was, and as rich as he was, and as, as influential as he was, he still had the good sense that he had a need in his life, and he ran up to Jesus. I've got everything. I've got houses, I've got cars, I've got cattle, I mean, whatever it is. I've got gold, I've got silver, I've got a bank account. It put yourself in a situation. But he says, I have a need. He didn't come to Jesus asking for material benefit. Lord, Lord, I, I need more money in my paycheck. Lord, I, I want a, a bigger house. My four-bedroom house on a basement is not big enough. I need something a little bit more, more land and more space and, and more things to put my cars in. And he didn't come asking for that as... Many times we do. He came seeking eternal life. He had everything physically he could possibly need. As rich as he was, he was really poor though. And as great as he was, as prominent as he was, he was actually super lost. Because he didn't know what eternal life was. See, the mistake you see in verse 18 is he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And many people make the same mistake. We think there's something that we can do. Comes to Jesus. What can I do? What what action can I take? Can can I buy my way in? Can I I share some cattle with you? Can, Can I make an extra room for you to stay in Jesus? What can I do? And we sometimes ask the same question What can I do? Is it go to church enough? Maybe I can be good enough. Maybe I can stop doing these certain things. What can I do to get an eternal life? And so that's a mistake because an inheritance is something you receive that someone gives it to you. And if you have an inheritance that comes your way, you understand what that means. Mom and dad maybe did all the work or maybe grandma and grandpa did the work to build the inheritance and one day it's passed on and you didn't do anything besides the fact that you were born in the family and you receive it. He makes a mistake saying, what can I do? Notice the master, he called him good teacher. It it was a title of respect. He uses the term rabbi in some texts. What he was really saying is you are the only one who really knows the answer to this question. In other words, he recognizes who Jesus is and he knows that Jesus has the answer. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. I stop and look at that text, and i got to wonder, do you think the young man knew who he was kneeling or standing before? I believe he was well aware that he was standing before Jesus, the Savior of the world. Jesus said to him, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And then the boy, this young man, says, well, I've kept all those. Almost like a checklist. I've done all that. Shall not commit adultery? Check. Never done that. Shall not murder? Nope. Check. Never done that. Shall not steal? Nope. Never take it from somebody? Check. Shall not give false testimony? Nope. Never lie about anybody. Honor your father and mother? Check. I've done all that. I'm good. Got it all covered. And Jesus says though, there's still one thing you lack. There's one thing you lack. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus knew this young man was amassing a bunch of wealth, a bunch of stuff for himself, but he really didn't have compassion for anybody else. Jesus knew it was all about him and and his stuff, but he didn't have compassion for others that are around. And so then the reality hits in Luke 18. See, when he heard this, the scripture in verse 23 says, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. See, if, if we were there, and we got a chance to witness that exchange between Jesus and this young man. I think we would have saw the surprise on his face. Wait, oh, 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 you're telling me to what? Sell all my, wait, all my stuff? You mean like get rid of all of it, Jesus? Not all of it. Let me keep this house and let me keep that house, but, but just a little bit. No, but Jesus said sell all. Of it. I could see the surprise. You could see the struggle and the difficulty, the pull. Like, wait a minute. Life with Jesus, the eternal life—that sounds really good. I want to go there, but hold on a minute. I've got my houses and my cars and my stuff and my bank account and you know my cattle and my, my farms and my fields, and I, I have all this now. Hold on a minute, Jesus, and you can almost see him like going back, Jesus. Hold on a minute, and he has to make a choice. Am I going to choose Jesus? I'm going to choose my stuff. I'm going to choose Jesus. I'm going to choose myself. The Bible says that, he, that his face fell because he knew it would never work. He knew he couldn't do it. Mark 10.22 says that this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth or great possessions. Why did he go away sad? Because he decided to not to choose Jesus. He chose his wealth. See, the message is the rich man was actually a a poor man. He went home to his riches, but haunted by what he threw away. I want my stuff. But I know I need Jesus. As people are coming in today, I was having a conversation with somebody, and they said they were sharing a story with me, and they didn't know I was preaching on this today, but they were sharing a story with me about someone who, loved their car so much, big beautiful car that when they died they were buried in their car. We all realize we cannot take it with us, but for some reason we want to hold on to it awful tightly. And that man, instead of saying, I'm choosing Jesus, leaving all this, he went away sad because he held on to this. And then Jesus uses this young man as an object lesson. Verse 24, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Does that mean he's telling us that riches are wrong, we should never have it? No, that's not what he's saying. Now some theologians debate that and they think about a, a needle, like a sewing needle, and hold that up and a camel and go, there's no way. In other words, they're saying it's impossible If you have money to enter the kingdom of God, and that's not what I believe the text teaches. See, Jesus' image would have have really spoken to the people here. He, He wasn't telling people they couldn't be rich. He was telling people, I must be first place. You see, in the main gates as you enter into Jerusalem, there's this really large gate. And it's where they would enter in and out. And that's where they would bring the cattle through. And that's where they could bring the, the donkeys through. And that's where they could bring all the camel through and all their chariots. They could go in and out through the large gate. But as the night would fall, they would close the large gate to protect the city of Jerusalem. And you weren't allowed to go in and out until daybreak. But over on the side was this small little door. Big enough for people to walk through and maybe some animals. It was actually known as the needle gate. Now start thinking about the Scripture for a moment. You've got a large gate you've got a very small gate. The needle gate. You couldn't fit a camel through the needle gate because camels would be carrying lots of possessions. Uh, they'd be carrying all the goods. But what they could do is they could unload the camel, take all the stuff off the camel, pass the stuff through the door, and send it on ahead, and then the camel could scrunch down and fit through the needle gate. The very... Really Small gate. But he'd and do it when he unloaded all of his junk. When he let go of all of his possessions. And once he let go of all his possessions, then he could enter into Jerusalem. Or for us, unloading our possessions so that we can what? Enter into the kingdom of God. You can take all this stuff off, send it ahead. I think this is what Jesus was referring to. That it's very hard if you have to let go of a lot of stuff. But once you strip off the stuff, you let go of the stuff, you can send it on ahead, kind of as a blessing, so to speak. And that's how you fit through the, the needle or the analogy that he's teaching here is let go of stuff except Jesus. And then Jesus may turn around and bless you with a whole bunch of stuff. The reward, verse Luke 18, 28, the disciples even speak up through Peter and say, we left all of our stuff. Peter, James, John left a very prominent fishing business. In verse 29, Jesus says to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in in this age and in the age to come eternal life. I mean, Jesus is basically saying, You let go of all the stuff, you trust me, and then I'm probably going to bless you abundantly here on earth and bless you with eternal life. Matthew 19, 29 says you will receive a hundredfold return. Do you know what percent that is? Any math majors in here? A hundredfold return is a 10,000% return. Would you put your money in the stock market if it gave you a 10,000% return? Would you? I would. I'd put it in immediately. If I told you... Listen, give me your money in 30 days. I'll return 10,000%. When you say, Brian, here's my money. Would you trust your preacher? So you're like, I'm not sure about that one. But we understand percentages and we understand investment, 10,000%. Wouldn't you love to have that kind of investment? It's an unbeatable investment. Batterson says the rich young ruler had everything we think we want. He was rich, he was young, he was in a position of power. What more could he possibly want? What could he possibly be missing? And why was he so miserable? The answer is easy. He was following the rules, but he wasn't following Jesus, and I think that is true of far too many people in far too many churches. Check, did the rule. Check, I did the rule. Check, I followed the rule. Many people today who call themselves Christians, and they may not even know it, are walking down the same path as this rich young ruler. They're in church, but not all in. I'm I'm here physically, but I haven't given it all. They're following the rules. They're not following Jesus. And if Jesus were to speak to them, he would say kind of something very similar. He would say, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. However, in this case, it wouldn't be about going and selling everything. I think he would say, you lack giving God the tithe. You lack giving God an offering because you're holding on. Giving God God just 10% is what he asks of us, but many times we hold on to it and say, God, I'm kind of in, but I'm not going to go all in. And all in means that God, according to your words, you call me to give up my part of my income, 10% of my income, call a tithe. Batterson said, I cannot prove this quantitatively. But I know it's true. The more you give away, the more you will enjoy what you have. If you give God the tithe, you'll enjoy the 90% you keep, 10% more. You'll also discover that God can do more with 90% than you can do with 100%. Most of us spend most of our lives accumulating the wrong things. We bought into the consumerist lie that more is more. But in God's upside-down economy... Our logic is backward. You ultimately lose whatever you keep, and you ultimately keep whatever you lose for the cause of Christ. You know what tithing's all about? You know what possessions are all about? Why he calls this rich young man to give it all up? Why he calls us to bring the tithe in the storehouse? He wants to know are our hearts, our mind, our hands, are they open to God? Are we surrendered? To him to be first in our life that's what tithing is about he explains it in malachi chapter 3 i the lord do not change so you the descendants of jacob are not destroyed ever since the time of your ancestors you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them return to me and i'll return to you says the lord almighty but you ask how do we return Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. I think sometimes what's happened in America is we can be under a curse of God because we're robbing Him, church. Church. We don't honor Him in this area of our life. Bring the whole tithe in the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. Now, a few of us in here have some crops. But I think today you may say, I'll prevent your car from breaking down so much. Or I'll make your air condition last longer. Or I'll bless your business with some sales that you weren't expecting. And the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed. All for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. says, are you all in? Are you willing to say, Lord, I want to be all in when it comes to my possessions Scripture's not telling us that those who have stuff cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Scripture's telling us it's challenging. That stuff can get in the way because we think our value and our self-worth is in our stuff. But the call of Scripture is that we let go. And the way it's brought in the New Testament is let go. Keep your mint, your dill, and your cumin, but still love people, but bring 10% of those crops is what the New Testament brings in. And so church, today I just want to ask you, last week we started in this journey kind of re-engaging the idea of being compelled. For Christ's love compels us. Compels us what? To love a community. Compels us to do something like an addition on our building as we broke ground on last week. Compels us to do that. Your 10% that you bring, your tithe that you bring in your offering goes back into God's kingdom work so that the love of Christ is made known. It's what it's for. But it's a test of our heart of is Jesus first place or another way to say that, am I all in? Bow your heads with me. Father God, today in the next few weeks, Lord, we're going to do some heart surgery, so to speak, with your Scripture challenging us helping us to evaluate, helping us to look, am I really completely all in or do I just kind of have a toe in the water of my life with Christ? God, when it comes to riches and stuff and things, i got to confess many times that can get in our way of being all in. Many times, Lord, we want that new car, we want that new toy, we want the the new furniture, Lord, and we put You on the back burner And we hold on to our stuff instead of holding on to you and trusting you with the call of the gospel of being people who bring back that 10%, that first fruit. Father, I ask that you would search our hearts this morning. That you would show us today, Lord, are we really, truly all in? Are we really committed? And Lord, just one measuring stick of that, So we talk about today, our stuff, our finances. Search our hearts today, Lord. Father, as we come to this time of communion. We pick up this juice and we pick up this cracker and we receive it. We're reminded of the death and burial and the resurrection of Jesus. But more than that, Lord, we are reminded that You went all in for us. You went all in for us, Lord, through giving us Your Son. And so, Lord, this is a time for us to worship. It's time for us to remember. But it's a time for us, Lord, also, with the help of Your Spirit, To evaluate, are we all in? As you are all in for us. Father, help us to do that as we receive communion at this time. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.